Hey everybody, I'm Zoe. And I'm Chandi. And welcome to another episode of Bound by the Cloak. Timothy Mucciante was involved in the production of the film version of the book Lucky, the memoir of the author Alice Siebold. Lucky is based on the sexual assault of the author, which took place in May of 1981 while she attended Syracuse University. Anthony Broadwater was accused and convicted of the sexual assault of Alice Siebold. Siebold went on to write the best-selling book, Lucky, not long after learning about the memoir, Timothy read the book and learned that the facts and the pieces of the case weren't adding up. As a former lawyer, Timothy kept digging and digging to find the facts of the case. He even hired a private investigator to help him. The more they looked into the case, they found even more discrepancies that eventually led to the exoneration of Anthony Broadwater in November of 2021, long after he had served his sentence. Timothy, thanks so much for being on the podcast with us today. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Timothy, could you introduce yourself? My name is Timothy Muchante. I'm the president and CEO of Red Badge Films and Medici Media. You know, we're talking to you today because of the work you've done with Anthony Broadwater and um, the whole, you know, Alice Zebold book, Lucky. So if you could um, just tell us a little bit about your journey with the production of Lucky that never came to fruition, but tell us how you got involved with that and how you got involved with Anthony Broadwater. I was the executive producer on the movie, what was supposed to be the movie version of Lucky in um, January of 2021. And I read the source material after I agreed to be the executive producer. And right away, things from the book, you know, leapt out at me as being not plausible in a realistic criminal justice setting. So that started the journey. Uh, myself, I used to be a lawyer in the state of Michigan, and I'm also a convicted felon. So I could see both sides of the story, both from the criminal justice side and from the convicted felon side. And the story just didn't make any sense. Not necessarily, I'm not referring to her description of the sexual assault. I'm referring to the actual legal proceeding afterward. That started me wondering um, if you know, there wasn't something more to the story. In the book, the assailant is named Gregory Madison. I was told at the time that was actually his name. So I'm, I'm thinking, well, this Gregory Madison person is a real person. And it sounds to me like he didn't receive a fair trial. And that was in January of uh, 2021. And then there's a number of events associated with the actual production of the film, which made me suspicious, I guess is a good way of putting it. And then as time went on, it just, it became very clear to me that this story was not or could not be true. Again, not referring to the assault, but in terms of the actual criminal justice application. The uh, film, with a pulled on the film in early June, my assistant at the time and I 
tried to find Gregory Madison and any hint of this case. We could not find anything. And then shortly after that, I decided to hire a private investigator and the rest is history. Do you think you would have been as persistent to find justice for Anthony if you hadn't been in prison yourself? No, I don't think I would have been. I think the reason for that was all of the non-ex-lawyers, non-convicted felons who had read Lucky over all these years. And that one person put up their hand and said, well, this just doesn't make any sense. Think of the lawyers for the publishing company, which I'm guessing would have read the uh, draft, the editors, all the lawyers um, uh, over the years who've read the book. There's actually one or two law review articles about Lucky the Book, one from Indiana University Law School, I can remember specifically. And instead of dealing with the obvious problems with the book, you know, they dealt with it in terms of victims' rights, which of course are important. However, in this case, Anthony is a victim as well, and, and that's not the way they approached it. I don't think I would have pursued this and the other cases we're working on now as well had I not had my really unique background. And I, I, I remember the way it was when I was a lawyer and before I was a convicted felon. You know, our priorities are very different uh, in those circumstances. You know, I, I don't think I would have put my, mo my own money out to help somebody in this situation just because that's not what we're in society. That's not what we're trained to do. So I, I, I do think it's it, that my unique background definitely led to where we're at now. And again, with the other cases we're working on, it's the same same type of situation where I, I look at it both as a convicted felon and as an ex-lawyer, whereas others don't have that unique skill set, if you want to call it that. Probably a bad way of putting it, but so no is the answer to your question. Skill set or life experiences, right? Life experience is probably a better way of putting it. I was really, I've told many people this, that I was really the worst criminal ever uh, for reasons we can talk about another time. But um, um, I really was. Uh, and, I, and I think a lot of when people judge me about my past, it's not necessarily that I was a criminal, is that I was a failed criminal. I think if I had been a successful criminal and, and sort of like Donald Trump comes to mind, oh, yeah, um, yeah. you know, a lot of people know he's done most likely uh, some sort of shady thing. But as long as he got away with it, everybody's fine with it. Like the fellow with this cryptocurrency thing, FTX, now that he failed at being whatever this has turned out to be, then it's a problem. Um, so I think if I was a successful criminal, people would feel very differently about me. So I take some pride at being a lousy criminal, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> let's back up a little bit and let's kind of delve more into, I guess, how you wound up as a producer for Lucky. I had uh, decided that I wanted to see some scripts that I had written or conceived be produced. And I started Red Badge Films. I am very open and transparent when I say, you know, I have no idea what I'm doing as it relates to the film world. So I hired somebody who had just been laid off from Lionsgate because of COVID. And we started down this road of how do we get these scripts produced. We did do a short animation related to the 2020 election. And I, I found that 
very enjoyable. It had, you know, a little bit of success. So it sort of encouraged me to move forward. The idea of signing up on on Lucky was because Alice Siebel is obviously a major name in the publishing world. Lovely Bones had done extremely well. I did not know at the time that I signed on that there had been several attempts to make the movie Lucky uh, going back to, I think, 2009. And this was, I believe, the fourth attempt to make Lucky. I didn't know that wow. at the time. You know, the, the idea was that if we attached ourselves to, to the movie Lucky, that would be sort of a big splash in the film world. You know, we would become known in the film world fairly quickly. That was the basic idea. It's unclear to me whether there was a deal with Netflix or not. Producers say that there was not a firm deal with Netflix, but there were discussions. Folks who've reached out to me from the actual production since that time have said that, yes, there was a firm deal with Netflix. So I, I don't really know if there was or wasn't. But regardless, if first-time executive producer had a, a project on Netflix, that certainly would look quite good. And the idea also was to go to Sundance in uh, January of 2022, which also would have been quite good. So that was the basic idea of of somebody with no experience, you know, signing on to a movie like like Lucky. Yeah. So you really thought it had a lot of potential, and that your company would benefit greatly from working with the project. Correct. I thought you know catapult us, you know, into into notoriety. I think it, it did catapult us into notoriety in a, in a different way. Um, <laughs> um, I guess we accomplished that objective. But it, it was to be a learning experience. And I did learn a lot. And um, I feel bad for a lot of the folks who were working on the production. You know, they were, you know, they lost their jobs and, and all that kind of thing. I was speaking at uh, the University of Michigan Law School to an entertainment class talking about Lucky some time ago. That kept coming up, you know, what happened to the people who were working on the production? You know, it did occur to me that, you know, there are these choices we all face in life that, that do we continue on with a story that has certain problems with it? Do we let Gregory Madison stay convicted sex offender or do we have 200 people lose their jobs? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's I really didn't think of it in those terms until I, I was having that, that interaction with a particular student in that class. So. Very interesting. I mean, there's a lot of different levels to think of, of everything that's happened as it relates to the lucky. You said from from reading the script, became clear that there were sort of inconsistencies and and things that didn't really add up. What about the script did you find that really didn't add up from the book to real life? Actually, it was more the book rather than the script okay. um, that was a problem for me. I've read a lot of memoirs um, over the years, and you know I, I know that what's in a memoir may have a, you know a little bit of embellishment to tell the story, and I think that's accepted. But when I was reading the book and I got to the section about the lineup where Alice Siebold was at the lineup, she picked out the wrong man who allegedly attacked her and picked the man who stood next to. To him, the whole description of what happened when the assistant district attorney told her, well, those two numbers four and five in the lineup, those two are best friends. They always stand in for each other because they look very similar. 
Alice in the book said they're identical twins. They look like identical twins. And at this time, when I'm reading it, I hadn't seen the actual lineup photo. When I saw the lineup photo sometime later, these two men couldn't ever be considered identical twins in any way. Um, so I, I, I'm still confused how that statement could even be made. But regardless, that's not something an assistant district attorney would say. It doesn't make any sense. And when a person's in a lineup, they don't have a choice of who other which other participants will be in the lineup. The story in Alice's book was, you know, we had to wait for them to go get Anthony's friend who was a dead ringer for him. And when I'm reading this, even though I'm a multiple convicted felon, I've never actually been in a lineup, but I, I do know enough about lineups to know that they don't have the choice. The lineup participants don't have the choice of who else is in the lineup. I would encourage you to go and read that part of the book just because it's so incongruous. And even anybody who has, you know, a CSI level of uh, understanding of the criminal justice system would know something's wrong with this section. It makes no sense at all. Later, when we interviewed Anthony's attorney at the time, a guy named Steve Paquette, when we interviewed him for the documentary, you know, we asked him, did this happen the way Alice said it happened? And, and he said, no, that's a, that's a ridiculous recitation of how that happened. So, with no other information about the situation, when I read that part about the lineup, I said, well, that's just, just rubbish. It couldn't possibly have happened that way. And if it did happen that way, Gregory Madison did not receive a fair trial. So it was really, that was the part that I read in, in, in uh, January of 2021. We had already agreed to come on ex as executive producer, as I mean, our company did. And at that at that point, I started realizing something seriously wrong with this story. And when I asked the producers, you know, has this source material been vetted? Are we sure it's a true story because it was going to be marketed by Netflix or whoever as a true story? Are we sure this is a true story? And they said, well, the publishers have all vetted it, you know, yes, this is a true story. And certainly there are aspects of it, I'm sure, that are true. That particular part either wasn't true or if it was true, there was a gross miscarriage of justice. Yeah. And, and you know, eyewitness testimonials are known to be unreliable. So besides this eyewitness testimonial that she describes in the book, what else caught you off guard and made you think something else is not right here? There were a number of things. One other section was the section she wrote about the sexual assault of her roommate, which happened sometime after Anthony went to prison. And she writes in the book that it's her contention that Anthony Gregory Madison ordered the hit on her roommate from prison. And I was in prison long enough to know that just not really a possible thing to happen unless you're like a John Gotti type, you know, really up there in the crime world. This is Anthony Broadwater, who had no criminal, significant criminal history. I mean, you know, it didn't make any sense. How is he going to order a hit on her roommate? How would he even know who her roommate was um, at that time? Because it was different from when he interacted with her. I mean, it made none of it made any sense. So it, it seemed to me like she was grasping at straws 
to prove that Anthony or Gregory Madison committed this awful act. And, it, you know, he was he was convicted, you know, so that should be enough information about did he commit the act or not. But through the book, he kept she kept saying that he was from this gigantic crime family. And, you know, the, the whole family has a, had a history of um, criminal actions. And it it just seemed very, very odd that she was going out of her way to demonize this guy. I mean, and certainly given the sexual assault, which she writes about in the book, there's enough information to, de- to demonize the attacker. But it, it seems like going overboard to say that she ordered, he ordered the hit on her roommate. And the, the information, the reason she came to that conclusion was that during the assault on her roommate, the assailant said, where's Alice? It just didn't make any sense at all. The whole section just, it just didn't make any sense. So that was, that was another, another, um, another part of it. Also, the, the way that she described the interaction with the police department and the district attorney's office also did not ring true. For example, she said that the assistant assistant district attorney, she kept referring to her as her attorney. You know, my attorney told me this, my attorney told me that. Well, the assistant district attorney represents the people of Onondaga County, not Alice personally. And in the book, she kept referring to her as her personal attorney, which again, just seemed, it seemed odd that she would do that. Later, I found out that that same assistant district attorney helped Alice prepare materials for the book. And one would think, you know, when when she read the book, she might call Alice and say, hey, you know, this isn't right. And maybe she did. I don't know. Um, but it just seems very odd to me that that she would do that. So there, there are, again, things like that. As a former attorney, you know, I recognize them. And certainly not everyone would recognize that. But there are a lot of law enforcement and attorneys who read that book that that should leap out to them. So anyway. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I think most everyday people wouldn't have any clue. They would read it. And then because it's a memoir, you're just, you know, assuming that what's in it is most likely fact. And we don't have the the knowledge to discern what is plausible and, and what's not and what's probable and what's not. And once, you know, you say something or somebody else says something about it and you kind of take a look and you're like, yeah, if you if you really think about it and you really analyze it, you know, the the instance with her, with the assault of her roommate, which I feel like personally you would need that information to be like vetted to even get that, you know, to be able to put that in the book. I, putting that in a memoir should mean that is 100% true. And there's no doubt to that information, right? There's no, there's no reason to believe that it's, it's false, but how does someone get away with putting in information that isn't fully vetted and, and, that just isn't isn't verifiable because I find that's something that is very hard to verify. I think authors who write memoirs get into sort of a gray area a bit because there is no question that Alice's roommate was sexually assaulted. Of course, uh, because I I spoke to the detective on the case that did happen. Did she or was she asked by the assailant? You know, where's Alice? Well, that's speculation. You know, no one knows that. So it is disturbing that, you know, Alice's book has been considered very factual. And I I think there's certainly enough evidence that suggests 
that, you know, much of it is at the very least, you know, embellished when I'm not in a particularly good mood and people are asking me about lucky, I call it a fable because I, I do feel it's more, more fiction than fact in some regard. And it, it leads to a bigger question, I think, in terms of this whole misinformation and disinformation society right. we're living in now, because for years, people have assumed this was a very factually based book. It was taught in law schools. It was taught in victims' rights classes. And it's frankly a little frightening that, you know, the idea of due process for Gregory Madison slash Anthony Broadwater is a secondary consideration. It is a sad, it's really a sad comment on society that we're, we don't question these things like stories that come out in the news, whether it's, you know, right wing or left wing, uh, uh, uh news stations or you know, network news or, um, cable news. You know, I think it's important to, to question things, you know, certainly in a respectful way, but, you know, to poke and, and prod it. And somebody wrote an article shortly after all this happened. The, the title of it was, um, why didn't, why didn't more of us see, right. you know, the fallacy in Alice Bold's book? I think as journalists, you know, it's important for people to, to ask those questions. And I, I did an op-ed in the, in the Guardian. And that was the point of the op-ed. Of everything that's happened here, really the worst part is that no one ever questioned what is clearly an implausible story. And there could be all kinds of reasons for that. The perception of questioning of a rape victim story is not something people want to do. And I can understand that. And that makes perfect sense. But on the other hand, we should, you know, shouldn't just send people to prison for a sexual assault they didn't commit either. So. It is a little, it is disheartening. Uh, and if you look at the rest of the world in terms of what countries or what geographic reason, regions memoirs even exist, it's basically, you know, North America and, and the UK. It's interesting that memoirs are not universally accepted as a literary form uh, throughout the world. And I, I was actually planning and writing a memoir myself, and I've, I've, I've dropped that idea because there's no way everything I w- would write, I, I couldn't provide 100% proof for a lot of things are things I I heard or whatever the case may be. And it's just not fair to put a story out that I can't sort of provide a link to so that every word I I, I say, you know, can be can be verified. I get it. You know, I mean, you have the author who is trying to tell their story and it's coming from, you know, their perspective as well. You know, you have people reading it who because it's a memoir, because it's supposed to be, you know, factual they're going to go with it and not really question much. And then, like you said, it, it, the idea of questioning a victim of sexual assault, you don't want to be taken, you, don't, you know, you don't want your, your questions or your comments to, to be seen as negative or coming from a negative place. It's kind of hard because then, you know, yes, at the same time, too, you have somebody that kind of falls to the wayside who, you know, happened to be Anthony Broadwater, where the truth in, in terms of this case became a secondary thing. And, and we focus on the story. It it is hard to to like juggle it because there like where's the line like of questioning the story right. but then don't know what to believe and it it's difficult. It definitely is. In terms of this particular story though. This story so far has turned out very differently than what I anticipated it would. We recently found out that there was a murder in Syracuse in March of 1981 uh that you know Anthony was uh was a suspect in. The he says that on the night of the assault, which is May 8th, 1981, that he was actually locked up by police being questioned about 
the, that murder, which is the fellow's name is Robbie Robinson, um, and that he was actually locked up that night being questioned. So he could not have wow. obviously um, assaulted Alice. And police should know that, I would think, you know, that he was they locked should. up that night. They should. Well, this is, I mean, this is what Anthony has told us. You know, we are still, the, the whole Robbie Robinson murder has taken on a life of its own wow. uh, in terms of investigating it because it's still an open murder case. And there's, there's articles from that time naming Anthony as a suspect wow. um, in the case. That's why I'm saying that in this particular matter, there are no winners. Uh, even though Anthony has been, you know, his, his his conviction has been vacated, I'm not exactly sure he's going to end up being a winner in this. You know, I don't think this is done well for Alice. I don't know the woman, but I, I I'm, I'm guessing things aren't as she thought they would be at this point. It's it's had a you know a very very negative impact on on my life. I don't think there is a, a a winner at the end of this story, and that's that's sort of where the documentary is going. Is that you know this is a situation that because of mistakes made in 1981, you know several lives are are ruined. And as much as you, a person may want to say, well, Anthony might get a lot of money. Well, he might he might not. But frankly, Alice getting a lot of money for the book hasn't really been a good thing. So just throwing money at a situation saying, well, things are better now. Well, not always. So I'm going to be really curious to see in a, in a year's time if uh, or two years time, um, you know, where the winners are. I think it's an important story to be told. Absolutely. Because hopefully folks can learn from it in different ways. But um, I don't I don't see any winners here. Seems like it's a, it was a lose lose situation for everyone, yeah. especially Anthony. Because, okay, yeah, getting a settlement, but he went to prison knowing he was innocent and no one believed him. How much money is going to pay for all that mental trauma or the time that's taken away from his life? I agree. However, if he didn't go to prison for the sexual assault of Alice Siebold, there's a possibility he would have gone to prison for the murder of Robbie Robinson. It's a very thicky, you know, situation. I, I think the fact that he was a black man walking down, you know, Marshall Street in Syracuse was his his biggest failing. I mean, I, I think I think it's really more an Emmett Till type story than anything else. Because one way or the other, I think Anthony was going to end up in prison. And I, I have no knowledge about the murder one way or the other, but there's plenty of black men who are in prison for murder who didn't commit murder. I think Anthony was destined for prison, no matter how you slice it. I think that was just what the white police structure at that time had in mind. And if it wasn't Anthony, it would have been somebody else. But Anthony was on their radar. So I don't think any series of circumstances would have not resulted in him going to prison for something. Which is, I mean, obviously unacceptable and a shame, that's, but that's really unfortunate. It really is. It's not yeah. that different now, too. These things still happen. You know, I think until people see the prison system as, you know, as a factory and, and inmates are raw materials and, you know, black men, in a way to not say this in a way that sounds terrible, but black men are the cheapest raw materials uh, to feed the system. Basically free labor. 
Uh, right. It is. They were um, telling stories about Brittany Griner and the penal colony she's hmm. going to, and she has to, to work, yeah. you know, 16 hours a day. Well, welcome to federal prison. That story frustrates me a little bit because it's certainly unfortunate what that woman is yeah. going through. However, you know, there are 100,000 federal inmates today who are doing the exact same thing, and they're not on CNN every day. So it's, and, you know, the vast majority I don't know if that's true. I was about to say the vast majority are African-American. I think there's quite a few Hispanics. Um, so I don't really know what the breakdown is. But the least number is certainly, you know, white men. I mean, that's why Anthony was destined to go to prison, because they, they needed another cog. You know, they needed somebody else to fill that slot. He was getting, in my opinion, he was getting locked up regardless of the circumstances. If we can just jump back a little bit to, to Lucky just for a couple minutes. When did you decide to leave the project and, and how did the project dissolve? And the next question also is, when did you first get the chance to interact with Anthony Broadwater? To, to me, it seemed like there were a lot of pro problems with the project uh, as we were going on. So it took a long time to sign the formal contracts, it took a long time to decide how to handle the financial aspects of it. Um, I was getting very, very suspicious. And then in mid-May, the director said she wanted to change the race of the Gregory Madison from black to white because she didn't want to perpetuate the myth of, of a black man raping a white woman. And that made me really, really suspicious because it, to me, the director worked with Alice Siebold on the script. To me, it seemed like perhaps Alice had told her something that resulted in this change. And the director also said, if we didn't agree to it, she was going to walk um, wow. from the project. I don't react to that kind of situation well anyway, <laughs> that it wasn't even open for discussion. We yeah, couldn't even yeah. talk about it. And it didn't make any sense uh, at all, uh, because the story obviously had been widely known in the book, Lucky. The assailant was African-American. I, I don't know what what we would accomplish by changing the race um, at that point. It, it is not fiction, or is it? You know, that, that's where I started wondering, you know, this isn't fictional, a fictional story, or maybe it is. It really made me wonder. So I basically kept uh, dragging my heels on what I was supposed to do. Uh, and then we, we just got to a critical point where the plug had to be pulled because, you know, I wasn't cooperating. I wasn't willing to engage in how I, you know, what I was supposed to do. And, you know, frankly, I wasn't getting, you know, people weren't paying attention to my concerns. I kept sending emails and saying on Zoom calls, you know, we have to look at this, we have to look at that. I think it was the, the, the idea that I was the new guy. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I was talking about. You know, we're just going to go down this road, even though I instructed production staff not to do something, they would still do it. Then I eventually said, you know, I'm not paying for this. So you're on your own. And then eventually it, it it just imploded. Once the private investigator made contact with Anthony, we set up a meeting with Anthony on the 29th of July of 2021 and um, told him what we wanted to do. Uh, you know, we wanted to explore his exoneration because, by well, people keep calling it an exoneration. He truly wasn't exonerated. Um, there's a legal distinction there, but I'm calling it an exoneration for the purposes of this. Um, but it, it's not a true, true exoneration. By that time, by the time we met with him on the 29th of July, I knew 
I knew by that time that Anthony, at the very least, did not receive a fair trial. Private investigator was quite quickly able to gather all the relevant facts. And within a day or two, uh, we knew that, you know, his, his true identity and that oh. he, he wasn't, um, he wasn't guilty. Or at least, like I said, he didn't receive a fair trial. So we met with him at a, at a hotel conference room in Syracuse. It was myself, the private investigator, Anthony and his wife, Liz. It was very interesting. He brought a whole stack of papers to prove to me, you know, why why he was innocent. And again, by that time, I I had already known known enough of the relevant facts to know pretty pretty certainly that he didn't get a fair trial. So as I was speaking with him about our plans and what we would like to do, he kept on showing me this paper and that paper and what letter he sent and and, and you know all this kind of thing. And I felt like saying, you know, you've already sold me, you know, we are, we already know you're, you're, you didn't get a fair trial, but I think it was important for him, obviously, to make his pitch, which he did. And then we, we told him what our plans were and uh, we wanted him to sign a release uh, so we could proceed with, with filming and investigating and all that kind of thing. In the release, it says, you know, we're not compensating him directly, which is true, but I did tell him uh, that we would pay for his legal fees and investigator fees and, and all that. And frankly, he was he was a little bit hesitant and his, his wife, Liz, was very hesitant. And he started telling me about how over the years when he would go to people for help and he would pay them, that they would always, and we weren't asking him for money in any way, but anytime he trusted somebody, they would screw him over. And he said they were mostly white people and you know, who, who screwed him over. And he, um, you know, he didn't, he certainly didn't sort of connect me to those white people, but, you know, the implication seemed clear because I was, I was white, private investigator was white. Um, you know, we were asking him to, you know, sign this paper to give us rights to his story, name, face, and likeness. So he, he started saying, you know, you have no idea what it's like to be a convicted felon. You know, you get cheated all the time. You know, people don't listen to you. You're not a full citizen, all these kind of things. And that's when I told him, I said, actually, I do know what it's like. Um, you know, I know what it's like to be fired from a job because they, they find out you're a convicted felon and know what it's like to not get an apartment because you're a convicted felon. You know, you can't get a bank account because you're a convicted felon. And I said, I know, you know, I don't know what it's like from a sexual um, you know, being, being, uh, being, uh, convicted of a sex crime. No, I don't. That brings along with it special or different issues. But just as a convicted felon for many years, I couldn't visit my kids at school because I was a convicted felon. I had to get special dispensation from the school superintendent. The other parents, you know, didn't like that I was at school events. Uh, you know, they make it, made it very clear. Like I said, I, I told them I know. I know a little bit of what it's like to walk in your shoes. I do think it's a little bit different because I'm a white man and I, I, I think he's had a harder time of it than, than I did. But there's still some common aspects. So he listened to my little spiel and he turned around because they were already standing up to walk out. He turned around, he grabbed the release and signed it. I think my conviction, uh, my, my uh, history, my criminal history gave me a unique aspect from which to view these circumstances. But I, 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 th I think at that time anyway, he, he understood that I understood what it was like to be in his shoes.
Yeah, you found common ground or some common ground with him. Right. I'm sure, you know, with the papers that he brought and what he was trying to prove is uh, he's been doing that for over 20 years, ever since he's been convicted, right? Trying to prove his innocence. So he's just in that survival mode. Just to go back a little bit, you had mentioned that if somebody read the memoir, Lucky, somebody who had knowledge of law enforcement or of the law read the memoir, they would have the same suspicions as you. So do you really think you were the first one to notice something was off? No, I don't think I, I, I couldn't have been. I would be shocked if I was the first one that noticed something was wrong. One of the detectives on the case, on the original case, I've been told, he says anyway, that, you know, he reached out to Alice, you know, to, to tell her that Anthony was not guilty. So, um, and that was before the book. And then when the book came out, he re- he says he reached out to her as well. So I don't, I don't know. I don't think I'm the first one. Um, I think I'm just the first one that, that did anything along that, that line the detective on the case or one of the detectives on the case, you know, could have brought it to the attention of the DA. Anthony's, um, one of Anthony's attorneys during filming said on on camera that, you know, he should have, you know, reached out to the chief of police or whatever the case it may be. Alice actually spoke to, at least according to her, to one convention of police chiefs and prosecutors in New York. And I believe it was 2005 or 2004. So certainly, one of the prosecutors in that audience or one of the police chiefs should have read that and said, well, this just doesn't make any sense. And I'm sure they did. I'm, I'm sure somebody, you know, noticed it. So, no, I don't think I'm the first one at all. But you were the one who made a splash. Right. Why do you think you did that? Why do you think there was a splash or why do you think I went down that road to make a splash? Both. Well, <laughs> well, I, I guess we do know why there is a splash, right? Because you started investigating. So, but why why did you go down that road? I've been asked that question several times in different interviews, and I always give sort of the same analogy. And I'm the kind of person who will stay on, you know, the phone with a credit card company for two hours to dispute a $14 charge, which clearly makes no sense in terms of good use of time. But it it just drives me crazy uh, that you know, something like that would would happen. The other two cases that we're heavily involved in now are very similar in terms of different, like news agencies have, or media uh, agencies have, uh, our media companies have um, looked at these two cases and come to the conclusion that in both cases, these people were guilty. And, you know, we got into it and quickly came to the conclusion that they're not guilty. And a big part of it is just the tenacity to keep asking questions, you know, things that that other media companies would would accept as, well, the police told us X, Y and Z. So that must be true. No, not necessarily. I mean, police try their hardest, but they can sometimes get it wrong. It's important to always keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper until you truly get to the you know fact, the verifiable fact. So that's just sort of the way I am. And it drives a lot of people crazy because it's a lot easier just to go along with what everybody's telling you. You you don't end up thinking about it at three in the morning. And I, I just couldn't let it go until I knew who Gregory Madison was and did he receive a fair trial? Um, because if he did receive a fair trial, that's what the justice system is about. At the beginning, 
we didn't assume anything. We didn't, we went into it, not even with the presumption that Alice had, had been sexually assaulted. You know, we, we sort of just went in with a completely blank slate of, we don't know if this story is true. We don't know if she was assaulted. We don't know if she went to Syracuse University. We don't know any of this. So, you know, we went back in and reconstructed everything. I think that's how we quickly got to the conclusion that Anthony did not receive a fair trial because we didn't take anything for granted. I think that's a really good way of approaching these matters. Yeah, it's like trying to look at it without any bias or, or without any particular point of view. You're just coming at it looking for the facts and piecing everything together and seeing what makes sense and what doesn't. And wherever you wind up is where you wind up in the end. Yeah, and, and we got, I mean, I, I personally got quite a bit of blowback on on my statement at the beginning that, you know, I'm, I'm not accepting as given that that Alice was sexually assaulted, that people didn't like that I was even questioning that. And I, I wasn't saying that she wasn't sexually assaulted, uh, you know, but we have to not assume anything. Um, and the first piece of information we got back was that, yes, she was sexually assaulted. Okay, so we can tick that off. We verified she was sexually assaulted. We weren't trying to be disrespectful or anything like that. We just had to, we just had to start at the very beginning, especially because we could find no information about this case anywhere Alice lived. So it, it, it frankly made us want to dig even harder to find out what actually happened. There was a reason it was at the time case was under seal. So there was a reason we mm -hmm. couldn't find it, but um, until we found it, we didn't find it. So it was an important part of the process, but it, it did make some people angry that we didn't accept that as, as a given. I can't say I regret that. I mean, it, could, it, it, it ended up being a very you know successful search, but it did, it did bother people. Do you still have uh, any contact with Anthony at all? I haven't had any contact with him in, in quite a while. The last he has lawyered up, uh, the lawyers don't want me talking to him. So we have had some communication, notwithstanding that, but not much. When did you decide to actually pull away from the project? And what were all the ramifications from that? I know you had mentioned that a little bit in the beginning about people losing their jobs. Pulling away from the project was sort of gradual. Frankly, I was hoping that the producers would wake up and listen to me. And I, I know I'm not a film person, you know, and that doesn't mean that, you know, I don't have good judgment. Um, although I haven't always used good judgment in that particular case, I think I was using good judgment. So I was sort of hoping they would wake up um, and, you know, they, they, they were just, you know, on a track where it just wasn't going to happen. In terms of the ramifications, I immediately got labeled just the worst person ever to work with. Other projects we were involved with, people started dropping out because they heard what happened with Lucky. And um, that was disappointing because we couldn't, at the time, we couldn't tell people what was going on. It just looked like I was being difficult. We couldn't really say, well, there's a reason for me being difficult. It, it's not just me being cantankerous. And it was very disheartening. And I, you know, I, I'm obviously not of prime age of most people in, in film. So people who actually have careers in film and they're relying on, you know, these careers to feed their families and buy houses and that, you know, they have a different attitude than I have because if we didn't, you know, move forward with any of these projects, it's not the end of the world. I mean, there are some stories that I think are important to tell and that's what I wanted to do. But if, 
if at the end of the day, they weren't told, well, the world's not going to change a whole lot. It's very different for people who are in the prime of life and they eat, live and breathe the film industry. And that's actually caused a lot. That sort of displacement of attitudes has caused a lot of, of trouble in, in other aspects of the documentary, producing the documentary and distributing it. But in, in terms of the actual project, Lucky, I, I think that was the single biggest thing is that we couldn't be, um, you know, I couldn't be upfront with people wondering why it imploded until we had all the facts. Yeah. And it seems like your lack of film experience made it seem like you were less credible to the people on the set or to the people involved in production. Yeah. And, and that's a fair comment. I went into it, as I said in this interview, you know, acknowledging you know, that I, I don't know anything about this. I'm here to learn. That's the only way I can learn is if I first admit my ignorance. I mean, that's a fair criticism, but at the end of the day, and everyone, including Alice, knew of my criminal history. You know, this wasn't hidden or anything. I think if I'm pointing out there are certain problems here, we need to pause. And that was the exact word I kept using. We have to pause. We have to pause. We have to pause. I really think at that point, you know, they, they should say, well, maybe there's something to, to be heated here. You know, do I know, you know, what aspect ratio of what lens we should use? No. Do I know when a story stinks? Yes. So, you know, give me credit for what I do know, not what I, you know, don't criticize me for what I don't know. But I think you're right. I think that, you know, I just didn't have credibility on, on the set. You were saying, I mean, you don't need to know about set direction and all of that, but you do know about lineups. Right. Relevant. <laughs> so I would think they... It's very beneficial in this case. Right. So I would have think I would have thought that the production would actually see you as more credible in the sense that you know what you're talking about when it comes to the legal aspects of the case. Right. One of the attorneys for the actual production, because it was you know, a separate production entity, kept saying that, that I was making a circus, a circus of a, of a legitimate production. That was the word he kept using, circus. At this point, I hadn't disclosed to him you know, all the problems there were on this production. He wasn't representing me. He was representing the production. And I didn't feel I had to do his job for him. But he, he, he kept using that word over and over again. The mm. circus. Muchante is making this into a circus. And um, don't like to be told that they're wrong, right? <laughs> no. So, <laughs> so you came um, in and you were just like dismantling the whole house. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you if, if it wasn't a legitimate threat, right, um, they wouldn't have given you a second shot. So it seems like there's truth in what you were saying, because if, if there wasn't, why would they, you know, care about what you're saying? Yeah, I, I think um, I think that's true. I still think if they would have listened and we could have changed the story to reflect what actually happened, wouldn't that have been a better story? I mean, we could make it like a story about the movie, you know, about how, and how the movie ended up exonerating or, you know, vacating the judgment of, of uh, Anthony. Wouldn't that be a fabulous movie? Oh, I'm sure. You know, <laughs> that doesn't, you know, if you don't fit into the pigeonholes, if you don't tick the boxes, you know, I, when I was a kid, I didn't color inside the lines and I was very proud to cover color outside the lines and I'm still coloring outside the lines. And it's not, not always advantageous, but in cases like this, it is. So I know you have a lot of other things going on. You mentioned before other projects. And we've heard for a while about a project called Unlucky. But if you could tell us about Unlucky or tell us about any other projects you have going on. Unlucky 
We are. We we have uh, pretty much all of the uh, film that's already been taken. Company in the UK is completing it, and we're not really sure when that is going to be out. Probably within the next twelve months. We've gone back and forth on you know is it, is it going to be just one one episode or several episodes, and I, I think that's still sort of up for grabs. I am concerned about uh, distribution because. If we, you know, go to a what's referred to as a, a prime streamer, you know, there's all kinds of conditions associated with that. And I want to tell the true story, warts and all, including my past. I want everything to be factually based. And that doesn't necessarily fit with the way a lot of streamers want things. So um, you know, we're gonna have to figure figure that out. We're also working on a another documentary, the one uh, from the fellow from upstate New York, Pete Wallacek is his name. It's called Hocus Pocus. And it's a, a really amazing story. He was uh, convicted of murdering his, his wife by driving when they were both in his truck of driving into a lake. And when I first heard about this story, came to us after the Anthony Broadwater story, when I first came to it, I had just a ton of doubts about the information that I was being given. And once I started getting into it, I realized that, like Anthony, Pete did not receive a fair trial. They had to try him three times to get a conviction. And it's an awful, awful situation. Certainly, it's regrettable that his wife you know, died. But all the facts we've been able to uncover so far indicate that it was a was a suicide and there's been two other documentaries done by um hln and discovery i think that highlighted his case both of which came to the conclusion that he was guilty and again this is a situation that once we started re-verifying the fact talking to people it's really truly an incredible miscarriage of justice for for pete so that's going to be very interesting we're just starting to sort of plan pre-production now. And then um, there's another project in Florida, which I can't really talk too much about, but it, it it's going to be a truly shocking story in a different way from Pete's because it's going to show in a particular county just a systemic failure in terms of their handling of DNA. It's going to be very, very interesting. So anyway, that's what we're working on. So not busy at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, this stuff is... It's really interesting because I can't tell you how many times on Pete's case that I decided to walk away from it. And then, it, but it kept drawing me back in like something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. It's like me being on the phone with the credit card company for two hours. I just couldn't let it go. And clearly, in my opinion, clearly he's, he's not guilty. He did not, not receive a fair trial because that's, that's what so many of these cases really come down to. I mean, I wasn't there on the night of, of May 8th, 1981. I don't know what happened. But what I do know is Anthony didn't receive a fair trial. And that's that's our constitutional guarantee. Pete didn't receive a fair trial. The folks that we're dealing with in Florida didn't receive a fair trial. Are they innocent? I have no idea. But that's not the important question, whether they're innocent or not. Did they receive a fair trial? People ask me all the time if I think Anthony's innocent. I truly don't know. My gut feeling is that he's innocent. Do I know for a fact? No. But I do know he did not receive a fair trial. Past that, it's in the hands of the jury if it ever gets that far. And, you know, they determine guilt or innocence and not me. It's hard to step away from these projects. It just kind of pulls you in, huh? Yeah. <laughs> it seems like you've now, like, this is your, these are the kind of projects you choose. 
Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. We've definitely decided to go down this road of, um, we call it ad- advocacy through film. I do believe with my particular background, convicted felon, former attorney, I think we can ask in some cases better questions of situations uh, because of that. And we have a, a team of people that are dedicated to this. So I think in the future, we are going to limit our our film work to, I guess, what would be the true crime drama, but I'm not sure that's the best description of it, but for lack of a better term. I think we kind of know what, what you're getting at. Niche cases that need to be yeah. looked into deeper because something just seems yeah. off about them. There's a lot. Yeah. There's a there lot really out are. there. The problem with the wrongful conviction aspect of the criminal justice system is that there's no money in it. The reason courts work well because there's money involved in in trials. Prisons work well because there's money involved in housing prisoners. Defense attorneys work well because, you know, there's there's money for fees. When you get into the wrongful conviction realm, it's so murky. I think if somebody could figure out how to monetize it, you know, how you get those warranties, you get called on for extra warranties on your car. You know, they'll call you and say, your, your warranty is about to expire. Give us money and we'll extend your warranty. <laughs> well, if we could monetize wrongful convictions in that way, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's just no incentive to get people out of prison. There's no incentive to say, you know, let's go in and look at this over again. Um, benefiting anybody else except for that person and the people like in close proximity to them. There was a case we were looking at, and this is uh, one of the saddest cases I've I've ever heard. There's a guy on uh, death row and he, he was objectively not a good guy. Um, and he had lived a, a horrible life and just, he's not somebody you'd have a lot of sympathy for, but he was accused of murder that he clearly didn't commit. He's on death row. No one will help this guy except the, like the most basic appeals. But this person is clearly not guilty. The witnesses have recanted their testimony. All these things have happened and no one wants to help him because he's so ornery and nasty. And, he, and so you, we get this person who might go to, go to his death simply because people think he's an ass and not because he's actually guilty. And the sad part is I'm sure he's not the only one. No, he really isn't. We've actually have talked to somebody where just because of the things that have happened in in her life, she may or may not have have done the crime, but it doesn't seem like anybody cares because of the other things that she's done. She's just in there. Well, one of the things I discovered early on when I was practicing law is that juries go for, in many cases, decide cases based on which lawyer they like best. And that shouldn't be the way it is, but some lawyers are more charismatic in a courtroom. There's no two ways about it. It's almost overwhelming, you know, when, because we get a lot of requests through Instagram and Facebook and, and such. And a lot of these stories sound really awful, and they are. And it's almost overwhelming. Like, why can't we help more of these people? But we just can't. Um, and hopefully, you know, somebody else will, 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 will help them out. But if we, if we even did a cursory examination of every case that, you know, we're approached on, we would be doing nothing else. So it's a real shame that that happens for the ones we can help, or it looks like we can help. That's rewarding, but it is sad at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it takes a lot of time to, you know, for production. I mean, how many films can you really produce, right, in a given year? Right. 
think just the fact of a production, because that's really on the Anthony story. It's hard to go into this in this format, but basically we knew way before the court hearing that Anthony's conviction was going to be vacated. And it had nothing to do with us actually producing anything. You know, it was just the fact that we had discovered some material and, you know, over and shared it with the people that it needed to be shared with yeah. that, you know, really, really propelled the situation. So it, it isn't even a question when I say advocacy through film, for most of these things, we're really looking at resolving the criminal side before the actual documentary. It, it, you know, a lot of people look at, well, we'll do a documentary that'll bring attention and then X, Y, and Z will happen. We're sort of looking at it a little differently, you know, that if we can you know, not being lawyers, we have a little more latitude in terms of how we present information to the relevant authorities. If we can, you know, dig this information up like we, you know, did with with Anthony and present it to who needs to, to hear about it, hopefully, you know, the actual documentary will always be a success story of this is what we did. This is how we succeeded versus here's this terrible situation and here's the documentary now, now help us out. There's a little bit of a different approach. Yeah, because it's always good to see things resolved in the documentary that way. It, it kind of gives hope, too, instead of, all right, we need to do something about this. It's like, but it, we've already done something about this. So let's move on to the next one and do something about somebody else. It's kind of, I think it helps, like, propel people to the next one. Right. What have you learned from all of this? And what do you want people to know? Gosh, that's a really good question. After the film imploded, lucky I really had several nights where I couldn't sleep because it, it really bothered me that it's possible Gregory Madison didn't get a fair trial. It also bothered me that my concerns were so minimized because I felt I was an extension of Gregory Madison in a way. I was a convicted felon. Nobody listens to me. Nobody listens to Gregory Madison, I'm sure. And I think it's important to listen to yourself in those contexts. Eventually, I'm sure those thoughts would have gone away. And I could have just gone on with my life. But I, I do think it's important to be able to, you know, be true to yourself, listen to yourself. Because a lot of a lot of the situations that we might see during the course of our lives, you know, we can do something about, you know, we can help somebody out where it might not appear that we could do a lot, but even something something small, because this started off with a small relatively small gesture of hiring a private investigator it grew into something much bigger. I do think it's important to be true to yourself, however that manifests itself. One of the things I, I also learned is all the things I would do differently. You know, going back to the Lucky Production, I think I would have been a lot more vocal about my doubts. And instead of being polite and saying, well, we should pause things, you know, we should do this, we should do that. You know, I, I should have just said, listen, this is completely unacceptable. You know, we've we've got to re-examine this. I wasn't as forceful as I feel I could have been. So I definitely would have done that differently. And notwithstanding what you may have heard elsewhere, I probably would do it again. But every once in a while, every once in a while, I have some second thoughts. So it's totally understandable. It takes a toll on yeah. you and everything that you go through. Things like this happen. I'm sure personally you've had a lot of weird interactions with people. Yes. Yeah, we, we recently had a weird interaction right near our house. It was a little frightening. You know, we live in a fairly safe area and somebody who didn't agree with what we were doing relative to Anthony stalked us 
this is just recently, this is a few weeks ago, but I mean, it, it wasn't right when all the big media was coming out. You know, it was, it was pretty clear that he, he felt that Anthony, you know, should be held responsible for Alice's sexual assault. And I had no business inserting myself into the situation. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's really scary. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, calling 911 on an Apple Watch can really convince people <laughs> to leave. <laughs> There's some strange people running around out there. There are. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you. It, I never, I just never expected we would have the, the kind because we've received a, a huge number of people thanking us and expressing support. I mean, even now we still get a lot of Instagram uh, messages and and all that. Uh, but the ones who don't agree with us are a smaller group of people, but they're louder. They're all based in the United States. Uh, the the, the, the well-wishers are based literally throughout the world. The haters are all U.S.-based, which I find interesting. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. We'd like to thank Timothy for being on the show today and for his search for justice for Anthony Broadwater. Timothy is the president of Medici Media and also the executive producer for Red Badge Films. He's a writer and photographer as well. Be sure to check out MediciMedia.org to see what projects they have going on currently and what's in development. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, we're everywhere. And be sure to subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, really wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. It's been real. Thanks for listening. See you next time.